if you think that a little bit of legislation to tackle climate change and reduce drug prices and relied American manufacturing is so bad that you'll support the guy who mishandles and gives away America's secrets and launches an insurrection against the American state, then I, I just don't think you can be reasoned with, you know? Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy, and culture to an international audience. Well, what an amazing week it's been. The political universe seems like it's been turned upside down on both sides. Firstly, the Biden administration passed a massive piece of legislation delivering on many of its priorities only then to have the news overshadowed by the search warrant that was delivered at the Mar-a-Lago estate of Donald Trump. These two pieces of news put the contrast between the two parties into really, really stark relief. On the one hand, you have one party legislating seriously to solve the country's problems, indeed actually addressing many of the same themes that Trump ran on in his 2016 campaign, and the other party mired in scandal, surrounded by a media circus, as once again Donald Trump gets on the wrong side of the law. That contrast is why I think you have to consider these two things together in order to really understand them, and that's what I'm going to do in this episode. As I explore what exactly happened here, what it means for politics, including the midterms and the next presidential election, and whether Donald Trump might finally be punished at last for at least some of his extensive law-breaking. This is America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you enjoy America Explained, please tell a friend and help us grow. Let's start by talking about this massive piece of legislation the Biden administration just passed recently, because I think it is unfortunate that this got overshadowed by the news about Trump. The Inflation Reduction Act is a seriously consequential piece of legislation. It finally enacts many of the policy priorities that Biden ran on, And it's come at the end of this period of nearly two years now of negotiations and drama in Congress and between the White House, much of it revolving around the person of Joe Manchin, someone we've discussed on this podcast a lot, the moderate senator from West Virginia. Well, he finally came to the table with other Democrats and agreed on a package of measures that could be passed. And this package does three main things. So even though it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, It really doesn't do anything about inflation. Inflation isn't the point of this act. This is just a kind of smart bit of political messaging by the Democrats. They're basically thinking that inflation is going to come down anyway over the next few months, and they can kind of claim credit for that by calling this the Inflation Reduction Act. What the Inflation Reduction Act is actually more aptly called is the Greenhouse Emission Reduction Act. Because this is the most significant piece of federal climate legislation in American history. It invests about $300 billion in the green energy transition, and it sets America on a path to achieve by 2030 a reduction in its carbon emissions of 40% over the level that prevailed in 2005. It's a really significant step in the decarbonization of the American economy, And the way it does that is interesting. So it does it in mostly two ways. The first is by investing money in clean energy technologies. So basically, the federal government is now going to invest money in new solar panels, new batteries, new types of wind technology. This is the kind of investment that Obama passed as well when he was president. And, And 
one of the companies to emerge from this last round of federal investment in clean energy was Tesla, the car company, which is now the, the global market leader in electric vehicles. So there's clearly a lot of potential for this kind of investment to pay huge dividends. But that's not even actually the most important part of the legislation. The most important part of the legislation is that it offers tax credits and incentives to companies and industries to decarbonize. So the old way of thinking about how to go about decarbonizing the economy was through basically a tax on carbon emissions. This was hugely politically unpopular. It's never managed to pass Congress. It's even been voted down in some blue states when it's come up at the state level. So this piece of legislation takes a different approach. It says, okay, well, we can't get politically, we can't create a tax on carbon emissions. So instead, we'll provide credits, we'll provide incentives for industries to decarbonize. And this can also be a really effective approach. Another interesting thing about this legislation is that it also earmarks a lot of money to revive American manufacturing. This investment in new clean energy technology will create manufacturing jobs in America and the specific incentives within the legislation to create those jobs in places like West Virginia, in places that are losing a lot of coal jobs that stand in the future to lose oil jobs. So in those parts of the country that will suffer from the energy transition where jobs will be lost in fossil fuel extraction, this legislation will create incentives for jobs to be created in those areas as part of this energy transition. So the climate part of this bill is really consequential, but that's actually not all that the bill does. So the bill does other things as well. It also is a major step towards reducing the price of medications in the American healthcare system. It also actually reduces the deficit over a 10-year period, so America will borrow less money as a result of this bill. That's where the, the, the anti-inflationary angle comes in, that because America will borrow less money over a 10-year period, there will, over 10 years or so, be a small negative impact on inflation, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. The last significant part of the bill is that it raises corporation tax and it also creates a lot of new money for tax enforcement as well. So it basically puts a lot of money back into the internal revenue service. Republicans over the last 10, 15 years or so have been steadily stripping away the resources of the IRS. They basically don't want companies to have to pay taxes or rich people to have to pay taxes. So they've been, you know, systematically defunding the tax police. So this is a huge deal, you know, a BFD in Biden's terminology. This is the most significant piece of federal climate legislation ever, and it does a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And this is actually just one of the many wins that the Biden administration has had recently. So there's been foreign policy wins, such as the killing of Ayman al-Zahari, the, the um, a very, very senior figure in al-Qaeda. There was the recent news that Finland and Sweden have now joined NATO. There's also been the fact that Congress recently passed the CHIPS Act, which is another act that's going to help revive American manufacturing. It helps the US in its industrial competition with China by investing very heavily in the American semiconductor industry, again, bringing back manufacturing jobs to America. And there's also been these recent signs that the, the economy is starting to improve a little bit and inflation is coming down as well. And I think what's been notable to me about this bout of recent activity, especially when you consider the current state of the Republican Party, is that Biden has now delivered on three of the things that Donald Trump said were his top priorities in the 2016 election. So Donald Trump said in 2016 he was going to heavily invest in infrastructure, he was going to reduce drug prices, 
and he was going to revive American manufacturing. Donald Trump didn't do any of these things during his administration. I mean, he had bigger congressional majorities than Biden had by quite a significant margin, and he didn't manage to get any of this stuff done. The one significant legislative achievement of the Trump administration was a tax cut for the wealthy and for corporations. There was no legislative movement on infrastructure, there was none on drug price reduction, and there was none on reviving manufacturing. And what this really kind of brings home to me, something, a fact that I think we don't stare in the face often enough, is that Trump is just a really, really bad politician in terms of actually delivering on policy priorities. He's always too busy being mired in scandal and fighting these culture war battles to actually pass legislation that improves America and makes things better. You know, Donald Trump coasted through most of his presidency on the fact that thanks to the Obama administration's policies in the aftermath of the Great Recession, the US economy was growing at a great clip. It was doing very, very well when Trump came into office. That basically continued during his time in office. You know, if you call up graphs of American GDP growth or of increases in the number of manufacturing jobs, you just see a straight line that continues from the Obama administration into the Trump administration. At at the point that Trump was elected, you know, you could look at that graph and you wouldn't see anything different happening then. It was just a continuation of this economic boom that had been set in motion by the Obama administration. That, of course, came to a crashing end with the coronavirus pandemic, Donald Trump's mismanagement of the coronavirus pandemic. But that was really what allowed Trump to get so much credit, I think, during his time in office, which was just the continuation of this economic boom that he really had nothing to do with. Other than that, what did he do? What did he deliver in terms of policy priorities? Now, yes, he did do a lot to reshape the judiciary, to reshape the courts, to bring about the end of Roe v. Wade. That's something that obviously was really important to his most hardcore conservative, particularly religious conservative uh, backers. But on these issues that actually affect working and middle class people in America, like jobs, like drug prices, like America's crumbling infrastructure, he didn't really do anything. You know, it became a standing joke throughout the Trump administration that every so often the White House would declare that this week is going to be infrastructure week. And then Donald Trump would do or say something that would just completely change the media narrative, throw everything into chaos, and infrastructure week would be derailed. And infrastructure week never arrived until the Biden administration passed this legislation. So that's kind of why I think what's been the contrast over these past few weeks has been really interesting to me, because we're seeing once again what Trump does, that he just gets himself again and again in really, really bad trouble, often with the law, and then that just completely detracts from the ability to keep any kind of focus on a Republican agenda, particularly on you know this kind of agenda that Trump supposedly stood for in 2016, which was a type of republicanism that was going to help the working class and actually, you know, help struggling people in America. Trump never did that. And he's never going to do that because he can't help but just focus again and again on himself and the problems that he causes. That's where he is again right now. After the break, we'll unpack that. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So 
So when federal agents searched Donald Trump's home last week, they took away 11 boxes of classified material. And because the search warrant that underway this search has now been released, we actually know the specific laws that Trump is suspected of having violated by keeping these records. There's three laws that the feds say that he probably violated. And it's important to point out that in order to get this warrant, you need to prove what's called probable cause, which is a pretty high baseline. They had to convince a judge that there was probable cause that these three laws had been violated in Trump keeping these documents. Now, the first law that was violated is the one that's kind of, I think, has got everyone's attention. It's called the Espionage Act. It was passed in 1917. It covers helping foreign adversaries. So, you know, indeed what you would think of as espionage, like helping a foreign spy to steal America's secrets. But it also covers mishandling sensitive documents, which might be of interest to said adversaries. So this act basically says that there are certain categories of government secrets that are so important, it's so dangerous to have them out there in the world that you can be convicted of a crime under the Espionage Act just by being, you know, not handling these documents properly, by not being cautious with these documents, you can actually be charged under the Espionage Act. Now, we think that that is the, the meaning of the Espionage Act in this case. There's no um, evidence or, or suggestion so far that Trump actually helped a foreign adversary, although, I mean, this wouldn't be completely beyond the bounds of the possible, you know, we all remember how during the Trump administration, Trump showed secret intelligence that had been gathered by Israel to Russian officials in the Oval Office, leading to all kinds of negative consequences. This potentially burned Israel's intelligence sources. The CIA had to withdraw from Moscow, one of its most important assets, someone who was highly placed in the Kremlin, feeding information to the American government. And they had to bring him out because they were worried that Donald Trump was going to blab about this person's existence to Russian officials or to Vladimir Putin. So Trump definitely has a, a history of talking to foreign officials about sensitive intelligence. You know, so we can't rule out that that's what happened in this case, that maybe he showed this stuff to someone at Mar-a-Lago who he really, really should not have shown it to. But we don't know that yet. That's just speculation. And, and you know, I would say that the likelihood is kind of using Occam's razor. That's not what's going on here, but it could be. And it really says something that, you know, this is a guy who is so uncautious, so completely irresponsible with America's secrets that we can even think that he might have done that because he has done it before. So it's not out of the realm of possibility to, to think he's done it again. Even without actual spying being involved here, these Espionage Act violations are really very serious. They carry a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison per document that they apply to. So you could be looking at a rap sheet with consequences in the decades here, potentially. The other two laws that were violated, one of them is obstruction of justice. So this may be because just Trump tried to hide these documents from the feds because the feds have been asking for these documents back for about a year, reportedly. That, that's something that's really incredible here, that the existence of these documents was known, or, or at least the existence of this type of material in Trump's possession has been known about for a long time. The feds have been trying to get it back from him, you know, by using cooperative methods, by cooperating with him. But it seemed that, you know, he basically told them he'd handed it all back, but he'd lied about it. 
And one of his lawyers seemed to have actually falsified a legal document in which she declared that all material had been handed over and it hasn't been handed over. So this is probably what the obstruction of justice charge is about. The third charge is easier to understand. This is one that just relates to the mishandling of government documents. So that's clearly something that's happened here. And it's notable that we've got those additional charges, the Espionage Act violation and the obstruction of justice charge on top of that. We also know a little bit about the material that was seized from Trump's home now, because this was also listed on the search warrant. So there are 11 sets of classified material. Some of this material is marked secret, some's marked confidential, some is marked top secret, which is the top normal level of classification. Some of this material, though, is even more sensitive than that. So this is material that's marked as secure compartmented information. This is the sort of stuff that even if you have a top secret clearance, you're not allowed to see. So usually with SCI documents, only a select few people within the government, one of whom might often be the president, would be aware of that information. So this is the most important secrets that the US government has, something that it's too risky even to allow someone with a top secret clearance to look at. That's how important this stuff is. Usually this material is only viewed in a specially secured room called a skiff, where you have to go into the room, see the material, leave it there, and then go out again. It's definitely not the sort of thing that you should just be leaving, you know, in your kitchen or in the bathroom so you can have a, have a read of it while you're on the toilet, right? This is really, really, really important material. We don't know yet exactly what's in these classified documents or why Trump wanted to keep it. But we have heard that some of it relates to nuclear weapons or nuclear secrets. Now, we don't know if that's America's nuclear weapons and nuclear secrets or if it's those of another country. But that's really kind of the only indication that we've got of the actual you know, content of this material. The only other bit of material that we know the content of is that some of it is supposedly about the president of France, Emmanuel Macron. I don't know what that's about. You know, Trump had this, you know, famously difficult relationship with Macron. And for some reason, he really wanted to keep some material about Macron, apparently, that he shouldn't have had. So maybe we're going to find out what's in that and it would be interesting to do so. Why Trump had these documents still is anyone's guess. Like I said, the government's been trying to get this stuff back from him for a long time. He should have known that, you know, he risked serious legal consequences by keeping it because this is really sensitive, important stuff. There's no gray area there, you know, if you had, you should, you should not have this material. And he did. And he kept it even when he was asked for it back. So why did he do that? You know, at the risk of these legal consequences. I guess one theory is that, you know, he's just, I mean, he's, he's not a smart person, right? He's someone who frequently does very risky, very stupid things. So it may just be that he didn't really understand the potential consequences of keeping this material. He no longer really has any serious lawyers around him because nobody serious will work for him anymore. So he probably is just surrounded by yes men and by people who maybe don't even understand the law here. So maybe this stuff isn't really that important to him. It's just kind of mementos and, and, and things he wanted to keep from his presidency. And he just thought the whole thing was going to blow over. So he didn't really worry about it. I guess another theory is that this is material that contains evidence of some sort of crime or misdeed that he committed during his presidency. He really, really doesn't trust the US government to have it because he thinks it will be used against him. Conversely, it might be material that he believes exculpates him or proves his innocence in, in some kind of matter. 
be that a significant policy disagreement or a legal matter, I'm not sure. It could also be that he believed it was valuable to him in some other way. Could he have actually seriously believed that he could profit from this material by selling it, by using it to blackmail someone perhaps? Could it be a really dumb reason like he just wanted it to help him write his memoirs maybe? You know, and Although I think that that really falls under explanation one, which was the Trump is stupid explanation if he's just hanging on to this, you know, in the hope of selling it to a foreign government, because that would is something that he's clearly going to get found out and, you know, he's clearly going to get punished for. So we don't really know why he had it. Maybe we're going to find out. And I suppose this all raises the question of, you know, is this actually going to go to trial? You know, could Trump actually go to prison for this? I mean, it's sometimes the case that the feds will seize this kind of material from an official who's left office, but that's generally if the official just didn't know that he had it, you know, he'd taken it by accident and then, you know, the feds asked for it back, so he gave it back. What Trump has done here is clearly a pattern of trying to conceal, hide the fact he had this information so he could keep it. It's a much, much more serious criminal matter than, you know, is usually the case in, in, in this type of case. And you have to think, you know, I really think that Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, is a very, very serious, methodical person. He's not someone who so far has been keen to bring legal action against Trump. In fact, he's, you know, he's resisted a great deal of pressure from the Democratic Party and just from people who, who believe in presidential accountability to not bring criminal cases against Trump, to not carry out any kind of legal action against Trump. So the fact Garland has done this, I think, you know, shows that he believes that having these documents remain with Trump is a very, very hugely serious risk and that potentially there's been a very, very serious criminal violation here. But then, you know, whenever I start thinking about this, I think, well, if Trump went on trial, how would that trial even work? I mean, how would you find impartial jurors to sit on that jury? How would you keep the courtroom safe? You know, Trump supporters are already attacking the FBI. And how would you keep that courtroom safe if Trump was on trial there? How would you control the media circus? It just seems it seems very difficult to imagine, even though I do believe that it, it should happen. And, you know, I guess what, I mean, if Trump goes to prison, wow. I mean, he's going to be the most high profile prisoner in America. Maybe he's even going to try to run for the president again from prison, which would be pretty funny because, you know, he'd come out and start these speeches and they just go off in rambling monologues about how the prison food is and what happened in the shower and how the wardens were out to get him. It would really, I think, yeah, it would make his campaign pretty difficult, but I bet that this guy's never going to give up. He's going to want to stay in the, in the limelight forever. So he's going to do everything he can to politicize this process and, and to make it difficult. It's been really noticeable that his excuses so far have been really, really weird and, and kind of pathetic. I mean, he's given a whole host of contradictory excuses as well. So he said that the FBI planted the material. He claimed that he declassified it. He claimed that he didn't know that he had it. And it's kind of funny, like, you know, not when you put these things together, they don't make sense, right? I mean, if it's declassified and it was okay for it to be there, then it can't also be the case that the FBI planted it, right? I mean, he's just made no sense with these excuses. One of the most ridiculous has been he's been saying that Obama took 30 million documents with him to Chicago when he left the White House. This, as a historian, I find this really funny because what Trump is talking about there is that this is about Obama's presidential library that's run by the National Archives. So whenever a president leaves office, all of his documents, about 30 million in Obama's case apparently, go to a federal library 
and Obama's is going to be in Chicago, they're remaining in federal custody. It's not like Obama has 30 million documents in, you know, his basement or something. Obama doesn't even live in Chicago anymore. He lives in D.C. So Trump's just talking about the presidential archive here, which, by the way, is precisely where these documents that Trump has in Mar-a-Lago should be, is in the presidential archive. So Trump's really made no sense here, you know, but I mean, he doesn't have to make sense, right? Donald Trump's never been about making sense he still maintains this massive grip on the Republican Party. And in fact, you know, I'm 100% sure that this course of events has really, really helped Trump in any Republican presidential primary. For as long as this is in the news, probably even if this were to fade from the news, you know, over the next six months or something, I think Trump now has that primary locked up. Because Donald Trump really thrives in an environment where all anybody is talking about is Donald Trump and what they think of Donald Trump. Because that really activates this kind of defensive sense among his supporters, among his base. People who see Trump as kind of their representative against the elites and against the deep state and all of that stuff. As soon as they see Trump, you know, under investigation and, you know, they, Trump can create this impression that everyone's just out to get him. That's, you know, like catnip to his supporters. And it's already the case that this has massively increased Trump's standing among the GOP base. People like Ron DeSantis, who, you know, are supposedly the perhaps kind of challenges to Trump, you know, they're going to do Trumpism without Trump. All of these people now are just lining up to defend Donald Trump, talk about, you know, how everyone's out to get Donald Trump. They're just boosting Trump's narrative. And, you know, as they're caught in this bind because in order to keep the support of, uh, of Trump's supporters, they need to support Trump. And for as long as they're doing that, they're not going to beat him in a primary. So Trump's got the primary locked up now if he, if he goes for it and if he's able to go for it. But then I think that's kind of bad for the Republicans at the presidential election. You know, Trump lost to Biden before. I think he could easily do so again. In my view, Trump is one of the high profile Republicans who is most likely to lose presidential election to, to Biden. So this isn't really good for, for the party. And that, but I think, you know, just the politics aside, Trump should be held accountable. Uh, you know, this isn't about politics to me. This is about the basic rule of law. Trump violated the law again and again while he was in office. He got away with it for various reasons. He's now been violating the law in very serious ways think, since he left office. The fact his supporters are threatening and even carrying out violence against the justice system, against the FBI, against judges, shows that, you know, they're trying to intimidate the justice system. They're trying to basically intimidate the state so that the, the state won't enforce the rule of law. And that is a very, very dark path if we get start going down that path. This is when analogies to fascism start to make a little bit of sense to me. If you have, you know, essentially these anti-government militias, self-defense organizations that are physically intimidating the judicial system and physically intimidating the, the state and the FBI, so that they will not enforce the law against Donald Trump. That means Donald Trump can get away with, with anything, right? This kind of idea of a, of, a, of a great leader who is above the law, who can draw on these private organizations of violence to help him seize power and keep power, this is a really, really scary place for America to go. And, you know, I, I, I know that if Trump is indicted and if he does go on trial, that it's going to lead to serious convulsion in American society. But if our options now are either we have that convulsion and we stare it down and we, you know, dismantle these violent organizations 
or if we're just going to basically let them steamroll over the rule of law, let them steamroll over the state, let them take power again so that they can deconstruct the Justice Department and the FBI and put who knows what in its place. You know, we have to take the former route. We have to do something about this. He's got away with so many things. If there's not presidential accountability, then that's just saying that basically, you know, the president can do anything. Donald Trump can do anything. That's a much, much scarier place for America to be than actually, you know, biting the bullet here and making him face the consequences for what he has done and making his supporters face the political consequences for what they have been willing to turn a blind eye to or to support and encourage. You know, just just a final thought to end on now. I think, again, this, this just really drives home to me that I understand that there can be all kinds of legitimate policy and political disagreements between Democrats and Republicans. I don't expect conservatives, I don't expect Republicans to support all of the policy positions that the Democratic Party supports. But when you look at the contrast here, again, just to, re- to return to that theme, that you have this party that is completely united around a guy who tried to overthrow American democracy is now being accused of violations of the Espionage Act because he's mishandling the most sensitive, you know, of America's secrets. That is just not someone who should be anywhere near the Oval Office. And if you pick him over the party that is seriously legislating and trying to solve America's problems, albeit in a way that you disagree with, then I just, I don't know how to talk to you about this, you know, I don't know how to, how to rationalize that. If you think that a little bit of legislation to tackle climate change and reduce drug prices and revive American manufacturing is so bad that you'll support the guy who mishandles and gives away America's secrets and launches an insurrection against the American state, then I I just don't think you can be reasoned with, you know. And so this contrast to me is, is so telling right now. It's, it's what's going on in American politics. It's what the stakes are. And we have to see why, as I always say at the end of these episodes, we have to see what's going to happen. We have to see how this goes. I'm going to be right back here on America Explained every two weeks, giving you an update, talking about the most important topics in American politics and foreign policy. I hope you'll check it out in the future. And I do hope you'll tell a friend if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.